0: Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear part eight in my series of God in the Frontier. In part seven, I began my chapter on Mormonism and We are going to continue with that chapter today. Just a little refresher. I talked a lot about the beliefs of Mormons in the last section and what it is that is found inside of the Book of Mormon that Mormons actually believe. In this part today, I'm going to really focus in on the life of Joseph Smith because he is a product of the burned-over district and grew up right outside of Rochester. I will also be talking about the rise of Brigham Young after the death of Joseph Smith. And so while these two episodes do have a natural separation point, it really would be recommended by me to at least go and listen to Part 7 if you have not heard it yet before listening to this part, because I do reference a lot of the things that I bring up in Part 7. All right, and with that... Please like, rate, or review if you've been enjoying this podcast. I'm trying to get it out to as many people as possible. Another way to support it is by a donation. If you do donate, you can get a copy of a writing piece that I have done. So please consider that. And with all of the housekeeping done there, we're going to get into part eight of God in the Frontier. Chapter 8, Part 6, Charlatan or Prophet Understanding the life and actions of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, is essential to understanding what LDS church followers and other Mormons believe today. Often drawings of a young Joseph Smith, respectably dressed and bare-faced, appear on LDS literature with eyes as blue as the clear sky and hair as blonde as a wheat field, a deliberate appearance of purity and purpose. Yet. Joseph Smith's life was surrounded by controversy and violence, both directed at him and perpetrated by him. The LDS Church does not generally mention these aspects while proselytizing, but on nearly every controversial aspect of Smith's life, They have an official release discussing it, and even admitting some of the harm Smith was purported to have caused. In these moments, the LDS Church defaults to giving Smith the benefit of the doubt, in even the most dubious circumstances. With this viewpoint, Smith is often seen as merely a victim that is harassed and attacked anytime his luck is up, because he only wished to bring the truth of God to the people of our modern world. Joseph Smith's life can be divided up into three parts. His life before finding the gold plates while living in New York helps set the stage for the type of person Smith was before he became a prophet. Then, his life as a prophet moving further and further west to find a new Zion for his people. And finally, there are the events surrounding his death and the aftermath, which was led by Brigham Young. It's not surprising that Joseph Smith was raised in the midst of the burned-over district of New York after his birth in 1805. He was brought up in Palmyra, New York, only 10 miles away from the home of where the Fox sisters would claim their fame in the coming decades. And like the Fox sisters, Smith claimed he had special supernatural abilities even before the founding of Mormonism. The most famous example is recorded in an 1826 court appearance, where Joseph Smith was accused of glass-looking, an ability to see 50 feet below the earth's surface with a looking stone, in order to find treasure. The details of this case are sketchy, and the LDS Church long denied that the trial even occurred. But as irrefutable evidence surfaced, the LDS Church reneged and acknowledged the trial's existence. The case was based around a man named Josiah Stowell, who had paid Smith money to help him find treasure with this stone. But it seems unlikely the case was brought to court by Stowell himself because when the judge asked whether Stoll believed in Smith's seemingly impossible skill, Stoll replied, Do I believe it? Do I believe it? No, it is not a matter of belief. I positively know it to be true. So, with Stoll himself satisfied with the work of what could only be either described as a charlatan trick or a miracle, Smith was never found guilty in the case and was free to go. It is this fact that he was never found guilty that members of the LDS Church through BYU Research often cite regarding this case. Stoll was the only man who had reason to charge Smith with a crime, and he was fully satisfied with Smith's work. Mormons, with the prescience of hindsight, might be willing to attribute this skill of Smith's to his forthcoming divine abilities. Yet, more skeptical critics have argued that Smith convinced people of his glass-looking powers by taking items from others and hiding them, and claiming he could find the missing or hidden items with his stone. Interestingly enough, Treasure hunting is also at the heart of the origin of Mormonism. In 1827, one year after his trial of glass looking, an angel Smith called Moroni allegedly visited him to tell him where to find the 50 pounds of gold plating engraved with the messages of the ancient American Christians that would become the Book of Mormon. The ancient Israelites' perilous journey to America, the ascent of their great civilization, the visit of Jesus Christ and his teachings, the warring between the descendants of the Israelites, the end of Christian practices in America, and the plight of the prophet Mormon, all inscribed in these golden plates in a language long dead and forgotten. While Smith openly proclaimed that he had found these mysterious yet untranslated golden plates through an angel, he absolutely refused to show them off publicly. LDS members forgive this, because in a time when upstate New York was still largely considered frontier land, it would have been foolish for Smith to show off such a valuable relic because it would have almost assuredly been stolen from him. The 50 pounds of gold plating alone would be invaluable. But others remained skeptical, including those who lived in the same town as Joseph Smith. To prove the existence of the plates, Smith found 11 witnesses to show them to, and confirm that Smith truly had found it. LDS members confidently point to these witnesses as evidence enough that Smith did actually possess the plates. And so now all Smith had to do was translate these plates from a language that nobody knew into English so that he could finally share the true teachings of Christ with the world. Chapter 8. Part 7. Divine Translations of Human Nature Despite Joseph Smith's apparent knack for locating treasures, he personally never became wealthy from them, nor ever showed any of them to the public at large. Even the golden plates were eventually returned to the angel Moroni like a divine library book, so it was never seen publicly. While Mormons will point to the witnesses for proof, there is also the possibility of collusion on this matter. When a supporter of Mormonism might argue, "What would these witnesses have to gain by colluding?" It's also another possibility that these eleven witnesses were fooled. One only need to point to the Fox sisters and the subsequent rampant fraud in spiritualism, or the great disappointment of Millerism as proof that people can sometimes be easily fooled when hoping to witness a miracle. Could Smith have created an obvious fraud in the same vein of Florence Cook creating the spirit Katie King? Were these witnesses perhaps chosen by Smith for particular characteristics of gullibility or loyalty? brought to some secret location with a chest and dim lighting, only to strain their eyes to see this ancient artifact? Could Smith have used some other metal that, when shrouded in darkness, might be used as proof of his treasure-finding abilities? Could they have stood around glimpsing and peering at the partially obscured object while being warned by Smith not to get too near or to touch it due to its priceless quality? Did he thank them solemnly as each one left, promising to stand by him when others questioned the relic's existence? Regardless of how the fateful reveal to the witnesses bore out, Joseph Smith now used them as evidence of the plates' existence and went about translating them into English. In order to do this, he, interestingly, didn't even need the plates at all, but instead placed his magical seer stone into a hat so that it was dark enough to read the illuminated text in English, maybe similar to the glowing writing on the ring from Lord of the Rings. How exactly the writing appeared is not usually focused on. So, inside of his hat, Joseph Smith translated these ancient writings into the Book of Mormon. Like the prophet Muhammad receiving the Quran through his communication with the angel Gabriel, Smith was able to properly translate the Book of Mormon through his guidance by the angel Moroni. To this day, depictions of Smith with his face buried in his hat are used to both mock and revere Mormonism. As Mormonism eventually grew in numbers, Smith revealed that he even had earlier divine encounters with not only the angel Moroni, but God and Jesus as well. Just like Charles Grandison Finney, Joseph Smith, too, had his divine experience with God in the woods of upstate New York. Smith claimed that it was this experience which caused him not to join any existing branch of Christianity, because God told him directly that they were all misguided now that he had successfully translated the golden plates into english through a divine miracle that did not require actually reading the plates smith was ready to adjust his beliefs to the new real word of god but The translation process of the Golden Plates by Smith was not done in complete seclusion, and one supporter who believed Smith and helped him was Martin Harris. Harris, one of Smith's Golden Plate witnesses, was considerably more wealthy than Smith and aided Smith both personally and financially through his early days of being a prophet. Harris would obediently write down the words Smith translated directly from the hat. As Smith's face took up the entire hat, Harris himself never saw the glowing text, because it was dim to begin with, and, after all, it was Smith that was the prophet, not Harris. But when Harris's wife, began to doubt the integrity of Smith's translations, she insisted that her husband bring some of the documents that Harris had been copying home with him so that she could see for herself. Smith originally denied this request on orders from God, but eventually Harris's persistence brought Smith to allow Harris to bring home 116 pages of the text. Harris's wife, then proceeded to hide it because she wanted to compare a second translation of these pages to the original for proof that Smith was not just making something up out of a hat. Naturally, Smith was furious and claimed that it was impossible to go back and translate everything verbatim again. Luckily for Smith, he had another divine revelation which told him to write an abridged version instead of the 116 pages word-for-word again. Unfortunately for Harris's wife, she would not be able to test Smith's ability of translation in this clever way. And for critics, this seems proof that Smith was making up his divine encounters, his plates, and his translations. But even less evidence exists to know whether people such as Moses, Jesus, or Muhammad were all making up their own stories as well. It is difficult to reasonably dismiss Smith, without dismissing the much older and more renowned prophets at the same time. But this was not the only evidence of Smith's questionable ability to translate. He had attempted to translate a couple of other undecipherable items, at least at the time, one of which was some Egyptian papyrus. When he looked at the papyrus, Smith claimed that he had translated it and determined the meaning to be about the book of Abraham. But since Smith's era, modern science has revealed that this wasn't the case at all and verifiably proved that Smith's translation of the papyrus was wrong. Of course, the LDS Church has thought about all of this. None of this is overlooked by them, and they tenaciously address all of the gaps, holes, and problems that surround the life of Joseph Smith. In the case of the Egyptian papyrus, the LDS Church wrote a very long article on why Smith's translation was wrong. The Church admits that the papyrus does not say anything about the Book of Abraham as Joseph Smith had claimed it did. But rather than that simply settling anything, the LDS Church posits that there might be legitimate reasons for this. For example, maybe Joseph Smith interpreted another part of the papyrus and, since the papyrus disappeared for a time between Joseph Smith's possession and the museum's possession, that the actual translated piece had gone missing. Or, if that's not the case, and this is the exact piece of papyrus Smith did translate, what if Joseph Smith's concept of translating was actually different from the museum's idea of translating? After all, Joseph Smith had the ability to translate divine materials with divine tools, which would be a different process than any human findings without divine help, naturally. Conveniently, as with spiritualism, this would require absolutely no evidence to be accepted. When documents or items are not strictly and unbrokenly in the church's possession, LDS members often question the authenticity of what happened to them in the interim. Another inaccurate translation Smith was said to have given is often argued by the LDS Church that Smith never actually translated that item, so that one doesn't count. Rather than admit to a second inaccurate translation that would need to be explained away, the LDS Church prefers to reject it even occurred outright. Because if it had occurred and it was also inaccurate, What an inconvenient truth that would be. The LDS Church approaches differences from the outside world with the precision of a lawyer and the passion of an intellectual, leaving endless readings that feel both tedious and bloated. When people question the integrity of Joseph Smith, LDS members quickly become defensive. They claim that there are people out there who are jealous, angry, and hateful some of which have desires to see the truth of God and Smith destroyed. Often, there is an echoing of the famous saying about first being ignored, laughed at, fought against, and then winning. They will wax verbosely on how some people just don't want to see the truth. Infuriated by this, those that find the Mormon story doubtful often become determined to show exactly how bad and wrong-headed Smith was, while the LDS members parry the blows by sowing doubt into all the evidence used against them. Over and over, this dance between the LDS Church and those who are staunchly against Mormonism dive into incessant minutiae certain that this story or that evidence will be the undoing of the other. Those who argue against Mormonism scrutinize the book, finding a variety of anachronisms, objects, places, and events that were out of sync with recorded history. The Book of Mormon has been accused of near-plagiarism of a variety of other stories that would have been known to Smith at the time. And yet, might not the same arguments be made against the more traditional texts of the Torah, Bible, and Koran? Regardless of whatever belief one might hold, the life of Joseph Smith was agreeably controversial by all parties. When Smith finished his translation of the Golden Plates and returned them to the Angel, he then had to figure out how to print 5,000 copies of the text. First, there was the hurdle of local printers struggling morally with printing something they perceived as untrue. But the bigger hurdle was where to find the money, an equivalent today of about $70,000 to print the 5,000 copies. Once again, Smith turned to Martin Harris, a seeming stooge in all of this to Smith's detractors, who initially agreed to fund the venture. Yet, when they had lined everything up for printing in the summer of 1829, Harris suddenly became hesitant, fearing destitution if he were to fund the project he would need to put up his entire home and property while nearly everyone around him discouraged him from doing so. Smith was forced to wait for Harris to commit to the printing project for weeks as he grew more and more impatient. It was only then when Joseph Smith approached Martin Harris and claimed that Jesus Christ had spoken directly to him and gave him a message, solely for Martin Harris. Accounts happily shared by the LDS Church openly admit that Smith's message from Christ directly threatened Harris with his wrath, anger, and misery, amongst other things, if he did not pay the printer's debt. According to the LDS Church, Jesus Christ spoke those exact words, pay the printer's debt, To Joseph Smith for Martin Harris to hear. Such an explicit demand for financial payment might be unrivaled in the messages of Jesus anywhere else in Christendom. But it worked, and as a result, Harris fell into near-complete financial ruin and did lose a lot of his Palmyra property. But According to the LDS Church, he never regretted it, citing an interview where Harris claims Smith ultimately paid him back every cent with interest. While it is rational to question whether Smith's revelation from Jesus to Harris was genuine, the LDS Church does not scrutinize this too closely and accepts the actions leading to the printing of the Book of Mormon as just another example of divine will. Now that Joseph Smith had finally gotten the Book of Mormon translated and printed, it was now time for him to share God's message with the world. And ultimately, he would be chased out of the burned-over district of New York forever. Chapter 8, Part 8, Doubling Down the Role of Violence in Religion Joseph Smith's controversy continued to grow as he began converting people to his new faith. In 1830, the same year Charles Finney came to Rochester, Smith was arrested again while baptizing members of a family met through Josiah Stowell the ever-so-pleased customer of Smith's 1826 glass looking trial. The family claimed that Smith performed an exorcism, and the LDS Church calls this Smith's first miracle, which helped convert them to followers of Smith. But other members of the town found Smith's behavior not only immoral, but illegal and had him arrested for being a disorderly person. The long trial was attended by many, and witnesses for and against Joseph Smith spoke. But just as in the 1826 trial, as LDS members like to point out, he was found not guilty. Laws against those claiming divine powers were hard to pass even for Houdini a century later, so it is little wonder that early in the 19th century, law books didn't cover profit pretension as a crime. Immediately after the trial, Smith was picked up on a second arrest warrant in a neighboring county and he went through the exact same process again, only to be found innocent and released one more time. As the LDS Church tells the story, those who accused Smith of illegal activity did so on baseless grounds, often providing contradictory evidence against Smith, and they actively sought to attack him with a mob multiple times, reminiscent of the treatment given to William Morgan. But the LDS Church goes as far as to imply that those who worked for the law largely saw Smith as an innocent, God-fearing person just as much as any other honest Christian, and were bothered to see him go through so much trouble just for being a good man. But those who attacked Smith for being a charlatan and a lawbreaker continued to grow in number, and Smith was compelled to leave the burned-over district for good to preserve his safety. Upstate New York, once the wild frontier, was quickly coming under the yoke of the United States government and Smith fled west to establish a new American lifestyle in yet unplanted fertile grounds. Smith and many of his followers transplanted themselves to Ohio, where he was able to co-opt a local pastor named Sidney Rigdon. Rigdon was another product of the Second Great Awakening, who preached what is known as Restorationism a belief that Christians should reunify by going back to the practices of the apostolic age of Christianity in the first century AD. By going back to the way things were at the start, before all of the divisions of Christianity took place, only then could Christians truly unite to fulfill the will of God. So, it was not a far stretch then to see Rigdon embrace Mormonism, which Smith claimed to hold an uncorrupted version of Jesus' original teachings. While Restorationists struggled to interpret 2,000 year old Christian practices, Here was a man claiming that he has all of them here, right now, written in plain English and translated through the direct help of God. Rigdon assisted in growing Smith's followers by joining his cause. Despite the enlistment of Rigdon, once again the locals of Ohio self-organized into a mob and attacked Smith, In March of 1832, a mob busted into Smith's home where he had been caring for his sick children, and he was beaten, stripped naked, smeared with hot tar, and covered in feathers. Then, they attempted to stuff a vial of poison in his mouth, which he broke with his teeth. Sources claim a doctor was present to perform a castration of Smith but ultimately did not follow through on this. Sidney Rigdon was also similarly attacked around the same time. While the LDS Church brings up this tragic incident as just another example of a long list of attacks by those looking to persecute the truths of Smith's vision, it is more difficult to find a source of this incident that doesn't come directly from the LDS Church on one forum discussing all things Mormon, a user attempts to delve deeper into the causes of the March 1832 attack on Smith. Some evidence suggests that Smith was attacked for having an inappropriate relationship with Mirinda Johnson, a 16-year-old girl who Smith would marry years later as one of his multiple wives despite her being married to another man and Smith not receiving consent from her husband. While this would explain the presence of a doctor to perform a castration, LDS members are quick to cast doubt on the allegations, pointing to evidence that the man who made these claims was allegedly Marinda's brother, while records show Marinda never had a brother. It appears the man was actually her uncle, not her brother, but the LDS members have already made their point. One proven inaccuracy is enough to dismiss any argument about any of Smith's potential wrongdoings. Other evidence suggests that those who were part of the attack received documents that Smith and the other Mormons were attempting to take their own property away from them something Smith would be accused of later on when he moved to Missouri as well. Smith didn't merely stir up trouble with the locals, but was also catching the attention of the state and federal government. Even the LDS Church is fairly open about Joseph Smith's role in creating an illegal bank between 1836 and 1837 while still in Ohio. After being denied approval of starting a bank, Smith decided to continue with the creation of one anyway. For the LDS Church, there is good reason for Smith to do this. The Mormons were cash poor, but land rich, so creating notes that were backed by the land in order to get additional funding was important to further the cause of Mormonism the LDS Church posits that it's not unreasonable for them to do this because it actually was in line with the belief of alleged soft money advocates. The only problem they admit, before going on to list a variety of external causes for the bank's failure, was that it was illegal and short-sighted of Smith and other Mormons to have created the bank claiming suddenly and specifically in this particular moment that Smith was still merely a fallible man like anyone else. In the midst of the charges on illegal banking and bank fraud, Smith was also caught up in a conspiracy to murder a vocal anti-Mormon activist. Smith repeatedly fled Ohio during these court proceedings and was found guilty in the case of illegal banking, but was out of Ohio by the time the bank fraud charges were brought up. Smith's next stop on his westward elopement was Missouri in 1838, a place that Mormons had been attempting to settle for years and where Smith came into contact with William Morgan's wife. Back in New York, John Humphrey Noyes of the Oneida community continued to feel the increased pressure of a more organized and efficient state and federal government. but. Out here, far in the western reaches of the burgeoning United States, Smith had a very different sort of threat. One of suspicious pro-slavery southern pioneers wary of these strange northerners and their unusual forms of worship. These peculiar northerners had been moving to Missouri for years because of a prophecy from Joseph Smith. The millennialist prediction by William Miller in 1818 was widely known by 1838, but there were still five years before Miller's own prediction would come to pass. Like Miller, Smith also predicted the second coming of Christ, but was conveniently less precise about the date than Miller was. Smith predicted that something divine was going to occur in Jackson County, Missouri, because it was a holy site and claimed that it was home to the original Garden of Eden. Today, Mormons sidestep the issue that humans did not actually originate in America, according to the Bible, or genetics by talking about the Garden of Eden as more of a spiritual place rather than one where a physical Adam and a physical Eve originally lived. The LDS Church doesn't believe God punished Adam and Eve for eating forbidden fruit, but instead pardons them for it. Locals in Missouri heard the Mormons talk not only about the Garden of Eden, but that this was to be the home of the New Jerusalem, the alleged location of the construction of Noah's Ark, and, of course, the true location of Jesus Christ's second coming. Unique interpretations such as these grate uncomfortably against the foundational principles of Christianity. Mormons embrace them, though, And, to this day, they continue to make pilgrimages to Missouri because of Smith's prophecy. By continually moving to more remote regions of the country, Joseph Smith was able to have more control over how his church was run, with less oversight by the government. This tactic of isolation has notable parallels to another religious movement that did the same thing as late as the 20th century, the Rajneeshis, a group led by an Indian guru who moved to the remote regions of Oregon in the 1980s to grow his own following the locals of Missouri viewed the Mormons with the same suspicion that the locals of Oregon would later view the Rajneeshis as they took over a remote ranch in an isolated town. Both the Mormons and the Rajneeshis were seen as too different with a suspicious communal lifestyle and a fervor of faith that bordered on insanity to outsiders. In both Missouri and Oregon, these foreign newcomers showed an interest in the surrounding land and made efforts and spoke openly about the land truly belonging to them. Because more and more Mormons continually arrived in Missouri, they were having a more powerful influence on local government just as the Rajneeshis slowly took over a ranch, a nearby town, and attempted to influence the county and state of Oregon. Mormons were eyeing up and openly proclaiming the land of Missouri for themselves, and that it was desired by God, while ignoring such minutiae as who might legally own the land. The suspicion continually deepened between the locals and the newcomers in both situations until it reached a flashpoint where the newcomers felt the only way to defend their vision was with violence. The Rajneeshis walked around openly armed with weapons just as the Mormons did in Missouri over a century earlier but these similarities are only brought up to point out the trends in religion, regardless of beliefs. Mormons might be offended at being compared to the Rajneeshi cult, while detractors might find the comparison fitting. But this is not unique to these two groups as nearly an identical situation has played out between Zionist Israeli Jews of the 20th century and the local Muslim Palestinians. It is well established that this aggressive form of Judaism has systematically and forcibly been removing Muslim Palestinians from their home for decades, claiming God's will as their primary reason for their forced relocation depending on the belief of the individual and how they see the world through their own religious prism, depends on who deserves or does not deserve the land beneath them by order of God. For the Rajneeshis, the Zionist Jews, and the Mormons, the question of whether to commit violence to achieve the goals of what they thought was their divine right was prudent. All of these groups were aware of the increased stakes that violence would bring, and all of these groups committed to it, believing their ends would justify their means. For the Rajneeshis, their commitment to violence wiped their movement out completely. For the Zionist Jews, violence has haunted them daily for the past century as they continually grip and tear the land from the hands of the Muslims. But for the Mormons, the use of violence began in earnest with Smith's arrival to Missouri in 1838. While the LDS Church points to attacks from lawless Missourians against the Mormons as cause for the violence, citing the alleged burning of houses, they also openly admit to the formation of a Mormon militia. Violence broke out on election day when Mormons were not allowed access to the polls, which is precisely what happened to the Rajneeshis as well. And Smith was accused of intimidating an officer and refused to go to court. Actual battles were fought between the Mormons and the Missourians with deaths on both sides until the fighting reached such a pitch that Governor Lilburn Boggs ordered the extermination of the Mormons if they did not leave. Joseph Smith was captured and arrested during the ensuing fight and was awaiting trial for treason and murder when he escaped due to a sympathetic guard. With the Mormons resorting to violence, intimidation, and murder, the lines begin to blur on who was victim to who. For Mormon sympathizers, it's easy to see honest Christian peoples amidst the lawlessness of the Wild West that were just trying to protect their families in the land that a real prophet had told them was theirs. But divine right to a land is a contentious issue. The fact that Governor Boggs expelled the Mormons on pain of extermination was not forgotten by Smith after he escaped to Illinois. Three years after the governor's extermination order, Smith allegedly prophesied a, quote, violent death for Boggs. The following year, Boggs was shot in the face through a window of his own home by an unknown assailant, needing to swallow one of the buckshot balls in order to survive. Time had passed quickly in the decade following Smith's exodus from New York. After he escaped Missouri, Smith purchased some land in the small town of Commerce, Illinois, a town of about 3,000 people on the boundary of the still wild Western American territories. The land was largely a malarial swamp, and some of the Mormons started to succumb to sickness. The Mormons put their industrious nature to use, draining the swamp, and they built a canal. As more Mormons poured into commerce, their political power began once again to overtake the local population. Suddenly, the name of the town was changed to Nauvoo, a Hebrew word for beautiful, and Joseph Smith was elected mayor. In just a few years, Smith helped raise the population of Nauvoo sevenfold to about 20,000 residents. For a while, life in Nauvoo was good. As the population grew, the city reached out to start charters for everything from a university to a militia. Unlike Missouri, Illinois was still disputed territory between political parties, and every vote counted, which put the Mormons in a powerful position for the first time in their history. Politicians couldn't be as heavy-handed as Governor Lilburn Boggs was with his extermination order of the Mormons. Both political parties paid respect to the burgeoning city of Nauvoo, which was becoming a center of trade and growing larger every day. It was often considered the last point of East Coast civilization to stock up on supplies before trekking the historic Oregon Trail. The crowning piece of architecture in the town was the Navoo Temple, a replica of which can still be visited today since the original was destroyed by a tornado. Joseph Smith felt so confident that he even decided to run for President of the United States, although he was not as viable a candidate in the same way as Mitt Romney was in the 21st century. It was while in Nauvoo that Smith journals about his membership of Freemasonry as well many detractors claim that this is evidence that smith didn't get his temple worship practices from an ancient divine text but instead merely from a secretive fraternal organization the lds church glibly acknowledges that there are some similarities as well as differences about the practices of the church with freemasonry but Also, they say the same is true about how traditional Christian worship has changed forms to match the changing times, a position that undermines their claim of living as the original Christians intended, while simultaneously strengthening their current legitimacy. While everything seemed to be going swimmingly, a corruption was gnawing away at Nauvoo just under the surface. In order to secure their own protection, Smith knew that the population of Nauvoo had to be substantial enough to help protect Mormons from another attack. His solution for this was declaring that Nauvoo would offer protection for all Mormons in the area allowing more unsavory characters to use Nauvoo as a safe haven to commit crimes, provided they merely said that they were Mormon. When the Rajneeshis were faced with this same problem, they bust in homeless from all over the country to swell their numbers in a similar move. To make matters worse, a political party was gaining power in the United States called the Anti-Mormon Party a third-party movement in the same way as the anti-Mason movement, and Smith was now openly flaunting his multiple wives in public. Within the Mormon religion, Smith began to lose key allies and confidants who started to write slanderous articles about him. Then, to top it off, once Lilburn Boggs recovered from his assassination attempt, he made the nation's first effort at extraditing an individual from another state in order to hold Smith accountable for the attempt. Although Smith tried to dodge and negotiate the charge for a while, he ultimately submitted himself to the courts of Illinois and was tried for the attempted murder of Lilburn Boggs, once again being found not guilty. Regardless of Smith's prophecy where he foresaw Boggs' violent death, Smith was well known to be far away from Boggs' home on the night of the assassination attempt. But Smith's real problems were back in Navoo. The slanderous articles written by the anti-Smith faction caused the Smith-friendly city council to convene an emergency meeting to declare that the newspapers needed to be collected and burned, as well as the destruction of the printing press used to make them. Following this order, violence broke out and Smith declared martial law in Nauvoo, which attracted the attention of the governor. The governor insisted that Smith and the city council stand trial for the destruction of the printing press, leading Smith to only agree to turn himself in if he was guaranteed safety. The governor agreed, but the promise was not kept, and on June 22, 1844, a militia formed and killed Joseph Smith while he sat awaiting trial in jail. Stunned by their prophet's brutal murder, the Mormons were left unsure on what to do next. It's at this point that Brigham Young comes in to take over the leadership of the Mormons and makes the decision to leave Nauvoo and head out into the American territories and beyond. The anti-Mormon party had continued to provoke the Mormons into violence after Smith's death and the threat of the U.S. Army coming to enforce peace loomed. After traversing the Great Plains and crossing the Rocky Mountains, they left the American territories behind for the barren basin of Mexico. Finally, Young and his followers stopped along the shores of a Great Salt Lake, 2,000 miles away from the burned-over district where Smith began. Once again, everyone set themselves to the task of building another city from scratch, this time in a desert rather than a swamp. Mormons came to see themselves like a communal hive and started to use a beehive as a symbol for their new land, which they called Deseret. Deseret was a massive Mormon claim that spanned across what is today nine states, with the heart centered in Salt Lake City and completely out of reach of the American government. That is, until 1848, when the land was turned over to the U.S. in the Mexican-American War. Piece by piece, the American government shredded Deseret into their current shapes and states. When gold and silver were found to the east and west of Salt Lake City, Nevada and Colorado was carved from Deseret. The American government wasn't going to let it be called Deseret anymore either and changed the name of the remaining land to Utah after the native Ute Indians, the people who had populated the land for far longer than the Mormons. As the American army came to claim the land that the Mormons called home, they were met with armed resistance, this time while under the leadership of Brigham Young he directed the budding LDS church followers to take up arms against the federal government. This is remembered in history as the Mormon War, Utah War, or the Mormon Rebellion. The biggest tragedy that came from the Mormon War is remembered as the Mountain Meadows Massacre in 1857. Worried about an impending attack from the American army, the Mormons decided to close up shop entirely from anyone they did not know. When a wagon train of over 100 people passed through Utah, the Mormons refused to do business with them, which confused the travelers. Surprised and low on supplies, the wagon train pressed on. Mormons trailed the wagons for a while, surrounded them, and ultimately attacked them, killing 120 men, women, and children, sparing only the absolute youngest and adopting them into their Mormon community. The LDS Church openly admits that the Mountain Meadows Massacre did occur, and there was no excuse for it on the part of the Mormons. But, then, they also go into a lot of detail about how it was the result of an unintentional miscommunication, and had things just been slightly different, the outcome would have been prevented. They claim the members of the church responsible for the massacre were ostracized, but those outside of the church saw things differently. Valuable items from the travelers at Mountain Meadow were seen in possession of Mormon hands, and were even being sold to travelers afterwards. The LDS Church denied their part in the Mountain Meadow Massacre for years, blaming the entire incident, perhaps unsurprisingly, on Native Americans. Even today, they mention that the Mormons involved were aided by Native Americans. Many still question how involved the Mormon leadership was with the massacre, particularly Brigham Young, who clearly had the power to order such an attack. The mass murder committed by the Mormons happened at the same time and scale as Bleeding Kansas, but the Mountain Meadow Massacre is often designated as less important in traditional historical narratives, relegated to the same level of attention as the Sullivan Expedition in New York. Negotiations ultimately prevented an all-out war with the U.S. Army but once again, the United States had enveloped the Mormons and reencased them within a country that never fully accepted them to begin with. Their journey from the burned-over district in New York to the deserts of Mexico could not save them from living under the laws and social norms of the United States. Faced with this prospect, the LDS Church decided to give up the violence, excommunicate the polygamists, and normalize their religion just enough to blend in with more mainstream Protestant Christianity, while still remaining distinctly separate. This allowed them to apply for statehood, and in 1896, Utah became the 45th state of the Union, and has ever since remained the true Zion of the Mormon faith. Even today, when you look at the Utah State flag, they have the year 1896 at the bottom of it, and wrapped in a big yellow circle is two American flags with a bald eagle standing over an emblem, with a beehive at its center indicating that it was Mormons who created the state. to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one... ...goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size... ...please go to the description and follow the links for that... Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow NoCharacterLimit at Mastodon.World. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at NoCharacterLimit at ProtonMail.com.